Hey, it's great to be speaking to you this evening. As Toby said, my name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here. It's great to be carrying on our series this evening, our second week of our new series, looking at what it means to follow the real Jesus. Following the real Jesus, how we as the people of God are called to follow the real Jesus. To do this, we'll be unpacking a passage from the Gospel of John in which Jesus is speaking to a huge crowd of followers shortly after the feeding of the 5,000. So let's look at that together now. It'll be up on the screens, but do grab your Bibles or your apps or whatever you've brought with you. It's in John 6, 25 to 35. It says this. When they found him, that's Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When Toby and Matt were planning this series, they clearly didn't read my contract stipulation that says I can't be legally required to say bread of heaven during the Six Nations. But hey, I'll bring it up with them later. Um, When I was, well, what's starting to feel like a very long time ago, I was studying law at university. And while I was there in my second year, I lived in a flat with just one other guy. And uh, the flat, the building that we lived in had six flats and it was three stories. We were on the top floor. I was actually laughing at the pre-marriage slide because we had a big Velux window just like that. But instead of peering romantically out into the distance, we used to like launch fireworks out of it. And it it was carnage, that second year flat. And um, one of the things that we did, our, our building had this buzzer system, as you'd expect. And one of the things we did, because we were very childish, was perpetuate this rumor that the buzzer system in our building was broken and would subsequently accidentally misdial and call other flats instead. Therefore, what we used to do when people came round and they rang the buzzer was answer it pretending to be an old elderly woman who lived in the flat below us. You know, to flash out the backstory of this joke a little bit, we would talk about this lady in public. We chatted about Mrs. She didn't exist, by the way. We chatted about Mrs. Singupta all the time, told stories about our interactions with her in the hall in front of people that we would later then do the prank to. Obviously, it's clear we were far too invested in this joke now. But one day during this time, 
uh, a girl was coming around to our flat who we knew from uni and was coming around for a meeting about an event we were going to run. And she was unfortunately subject to our buzzer's malfunction. And uh, basically, she, she was having none of it. My friend was doing a great impression of a little old lady, but I think due to some background giggling on my part, she just wasn't believing it. And because my flatmate and I had recently shaved our heads, she shouted down the, f down the buzzer, come on, Baldy, open the door. I thought, you know, fair play to her, the jig's up. But my flatmate, rather beautifully, never broke character. He acted as an upset and offended old lady and hung up the buzzer. We then waited for a few seconds, and she rang one of us to ask if we could let her in. We buzzed her in, and she came in, and she very suspiciously recounted what had just happened to us. Amazingly, we managed to not, not give anything away, and we act with the deepest concern for our poor neighbor, you know, saying that she'd had a really rough year after being widowed, and, and she was very vulnerable. Um, Laying it on real thick. And obviously, realizing that she had just yelled down the buzzer and called Baldy to an upset and fragile old woman, this girl was mortified. And she immediately wanted to go down and apologize to our neighbor. But we managed to convince her that that would just make things worse. Just leave it to us. We'll apologize on your behalf after everything has blown over. Six months later, we, we actually confessed to this whole prank on social media. And uh, hundreds of people who had spoken to our neighbor were absolutely horrified. Well, until our eventual confession, that six months later, this girl had carried that guilt of that interaction. She'd even actually, she even wrote a letter of apology and she asked us to pass it on to our neighbor, which we found very entertaining and had pinned on the wall in our flat. It was great. Um, <laughs> My point in telling this story is that although this whole ruse was a lie, because Beth had believed it, it had affected her as if it were true. She'd approached any buzzer from then on with the courtesy of an etiquette teacher. You know, every time she came round after that, she tiptoed up the stairs to avoid causing any additional offence by heavy footsteps. The lie, hilarious as it so clearly was, and I know you'll all back me up on that, had affected the way she'd perceived each of those situations. And that's what I'm talking about this evening. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening, how the lies that we believe affect us and our perceptions. The lies that are pervasive in society around us, they affect us. We subconsciously absorb them. They affect us, and most crucially, they affect our perception of Jesus and who Jesus is. And that we, as his followers, as his disciples, as his church, we are called to cut through that, to identify and look past those lies to the real Jesus. I don't know about you, but I often think when it comes to the, the things of learning to be a disciple, like learning to be like Jesus, to do the things that he did, to be with him, that I'm kind of starting from this neutral position, so my current state is neutral, and then to learn these things, to be discipled, is to move from neutral towards Jesus and his way. But I've recently been thinking about how that's kind of naive for me, how that massively underestimates the dialogue of the world around me that's been blaring in my ear from the day I was born. Paul calls the church in Ephesians to fight against the powers of this dark world. 
For 26 years, I've been listening to the messaging of that world. And if that messaging is opposed to the way of Jesus, then that probably means I'm not starting as neutral. That probably means that those messages, those lies, have been subtly shaping the way I see the world, the way I see myself, and the way I see Jesus for quite some time. And that if then I'm going to learn the way of Jesus, the way of the disciple, then I'm probably going to have to learn to identify and unlearn those messages, to name those lies and force myself to live in the truth of who Jesus really is. Hannah and I have recently been playing a game called Name the Lie. It was suggested in a great book we read together over the summer, and we've been trying to play it ever since. And this game basically involves, when we hear an advert, one of us will say, name the lie. And then the other one will list the things in that advert that are not true. Buying that crockery set will not make you more popular and suddenly able to host the most infamous of dinner parties. Paying for that holiday will not make your family feel more connected or healthy than ever before, and you won't suddenly all be wearing matching gilets. Buying that aftershave will not make attractive woman, women chase you along the beach as you ride a horse. <laughs> Binging hours of Netflix a day will not make you more interesting. Being glued to your social media feeds will definitely not prevent you from missing out, and so on. And it can happen with bigger stuff too. I know for me, I fell into a huge lie a few years back. I'd come to faith, I was trying my best to live as a disciple, and I'd been in a Christian relationship, and it ended utterly disastrously in a way that no relationship should. And it caused me so much pain, pain that I felt completely unequipped to deal with. And it was a really horrendous time for me. And I'd never really felt anything quite that painful before. And it triggered all sorts of horrible stuff in me. A fear of attachment, a fear of abandonment, a fear of vulnerability, and a fear of my own emotions. So I decided that, you know, to make sure I didn't have to deal with that pain again, I'd make sure I never got close enough to someone to need to be that vulnerable again. I didn't really realize what was truly going on under the surface, but I'd fallen into the lie that Jesus couldn't protect my heart. That I had to do that for myself, because he wouldn't. And the safest way to do that was to shut it off. Then one day I was at church, and um, it was the time of worship, and someone came over to me, and they said, Josh... I think Jesus wants to speak the words of Galatians 5.1 to you. And it says this, it is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. And I think God's saying that to you this morning. I thought, what a nice old person. And then I carried on with my morning regardless. So the service went on a bit. The talk, started, the talk was a bit dull, obviously nothing like this one. And so I got my phone out. And I started like mindlessly scrolling during the sermon. And then one of my friends from back in Devon texted me. And he said, mate, I'm at church. I was just praying for you. And I felt God saying to me um, to send you the words of Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't know if that means anything to you. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I got home from church. I walked home and I was lodging with a family at that time and I got in and I went to make myself a cup of tea and written on their fridge was, it is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm. 
I had been living that lie that Jesus couldn't protect my heart. I'd allowed my experience to shape my perception of Jesus rather than Jesus to shape the perception of my experience. And it took Jesus to cut through that noise, to speak his truth to me, to remind me of who he truly is and to set me free from that lie. Without identifying them, these lives have the power to warp our perception of Jesus and who he is and what it means for us to follow him. Our experience can shape the lies, or we can just be so westernized to have internalized that worldly narrative so much that we can't even identify how westernized our view of Jesus is. If you want any more evidence that we fit Jesus into how we want him to look and be, look no further than the swathes of blue-eyed, blonde-haired European Jesus painted by blue-eyed, blonde-haired Europeans. We see it in our passage as well. This passage is straight after Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with a packed lunch. And he's vanished off and the crowd come to look for him. And in an age where food is everything, where people were living hand to mouth constantly and working the fields really hard to eat, the crowd follow Jesus because he's the guy who provides the free bread, right? No heavy labor required for that meal. And yet, when Jesus starts to challenge the crowd, they all leave. He no longer fits their perception that he's come to make life easy for them, that he's come to punish their enemies and give them a free ride. And so they go. He can't possibly be the one they've been looking for. He doesn't fit their preconceived notions, their worldly dialogues. After the feeding, thousands follow him. But when he starts to teach about the way of the cross, the hard truth of needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, meaning to share in his suffering, they all abandon him. Only the 12 disciples remain. Okay, so that's the wider crowd. Maybe they didn't get it. Maybe they couldn't hear when he was teaching that. Well, I don't know. That's the crowd. But we also see it too from Jesus' closest friends, those who are closest to Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to the 12. These are his closest friends and followers. They'd been with him day in, day out through his whole ministry. They'd heard all his teaching. And we get this interaction. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter has fallen into the trap of feel-good discipleship. He's deciding what he wants Jesus to be like based on his own worldly ideals. This is one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, a guy who'd sacrificed so much, who'd left so much behind to follow Jesus. And yet, even he wants Jesus to fit his own ideas. He wants a Jesus who is Christ-shaped, but not cross-shaped. He wants to follow a Jesus who avoids, not embraces the cross. The cross did not align with Peter's worldview of what a saviour looks like. 
And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. What are the cultural lies that we absorb as as his followers today that impact our perception of who Jesus is or who Jesus should be? Maybe it's the self-improvement gospel. Jesus makes our earthly lives better, right? So I need to show that all the time, regardless of how I feel. Regardless of what I've got going on, I've got to be the most passionate in worship, wear the biggest smile, because Jesus makes my life better, right? And I need to show that to other people, or they'll think that Jesus isn't good. Maybe it's the instant gratification gospel. I don't need to put in any work into my relationship with Jesus. If I can just ask him to fill me, then he will, and it'll be great. I'll experience all the intimacy with him without any of that boring discipline stuff of a relationship. Maybe it's the total opposite of that for you. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Jesus couldn't possibly love me just because, so I better work hard to earn it, to repay him, to do my bit. What are those cultural lies that we absorb that color our view of Jesus? Jesus should make me more popular. Jesus himself died alone. Jesus should make me great. Jesus himself was born in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere and spent his ministry homeless. Jesus should make me more successful. Jesus gives a talk right after our passage that takes his followers down from 5,000 to 12. Jesus should make me avoid suffering and failure. Jesus himself endured the cross, something that looked to the world like the ultimate defeat. The lies of society are pervasive and subtly powerful. And we're called as the church to call them out, to denounce them as the lies that they are, and to pursue Jesus as wildly countercultural as he truly is. I don't know what you're thinking at this point, but I recognize that this is all starting to sound like a lot of work. Overcoming the societal narratives you've been fed your whole life seems like a pretty daunting task. I know for me, I'm a slow learner. So if it took me 26 years to hear all this stuff, it's probably going to take me at least the same again to unlearn it. Yet we get the most beautiful answer in this passage, which says that is not the case. The crowds come and find Jesus. And Jesus starts to teach them and he says, look, don't get distracted by the signs. Don't follow the bread. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, which Jesus will give you. He's saying, look, it's just to point to me. I am the true bread. I am the bread that will satisfy every hunger you have ever felt. I'm the one you've spent your whole life searching for. And they immediately drop into another social lie, another societal lie, that the gift of God in Jesus has to be earned. And they say, what must we do to do the work of God that God requires? Jesus says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You're right with God when you believe in me. Jesus doesn't give them tasks like they were expecting. Or anticipating. He doesn't tell them they have to pray six times a day or change jobs or make sure they're giving to the temple. He tells them only one thing to believe in the one God has sent, to believe in Jesus. 
And what does that mean? Well, the Greek word used there for believe means to trust in him, to trust in Jesus and who he is. It's a command he gives 98 times in the Gospel of John, to trust in him. The whole purpose of that gospel is summarized in chapter 20, 31, which says, but these things are written, this gospel is written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The theologian Frederick Dale Bruner gives the translation relaxing in as the best modern translation of believing in or trusting in. Relaxing in. What must we do to do the work that God requires? Relax into Jesus. Relax into the character of Jesus. It's like laying all your weight back in a chair. That level of trust, letting him take all your weight. Relax into Jesus. We pursue the real Jesus because when we relax into him, he changes everything. When it comes to pursuing Jesus, the real, true Jesus, we do so in his strength and not in our own. Colossians, one of Paul's letters to the church in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 29-2-1 says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this I work at struggling with all Jesus' energy that he powerfully works within me. What Paul is saying here is that in his own strength, he can't do any of this. But it's all done through Jesus' strength. This passage shows us how that pursuit of Jesus, how that pursuit of the real Jesus is to be fought. One of the huge mistakes that we can fall into in trying to overcome these cultural lies is this me mentality. I have to do better. I have to try harder. If I was really devoted, I could overcome this. That's not what we see demonstrated in this passage. Paul shows that pressing forward and overcoming the world is done in Jesus' strength and not our own. In Jesus' strength, who's able to do all things and not our own. Relax into the one who is able to do all things. The second mistake that we can fall into here, however, is the attitude that it's all on God. Oh, I've said a quick prayer about it. God can sort it out now. He can bring me through this. He can show me the truth. He can get me to implement that discipline. No effort, no labor, no struggle. But what this passage shows us is the power of him working in me. It's me doing my part and it's his strength doing what I don't have the strength to do. It's not all me and it's not all him. It's all we. It's us created to need him. It's him waiting for us to call on him. It's his power. It's his strength working within us. It's saying, God, I need you to step in here and give me the strength to follow you. It's praying that God will give you the strength to overcome the cultural narratives that bombard us. And then it's sinking your teeth into what Jesus says in his word about success, self-accumulation, popularity and greatness. It's praying for God to set you free from your low self-esteem and then it's delving into the Bible to see what he says about you. It's asking him to free you from your drive to achieve and then it's implementing a true Sabbath, that true time of rest where you just stop and you soak in your identity as a child of God. 
It's praying for the strength to overcome the urge to gossip. And then it's choosing to speak out positive words in their place. It's me doing my part. And it's him and his strength doing what I don't have the strength or ability to do. The word that we've translated as struggle in this Colossians passage is agonizomai. <laughs> well, I don't know. You, you can tell me if I said it wrong. But let's go with that. Um, the word is agonizomai, which means to struggle to compete for a prize, to contend against an adversary and to win. It's where we get the word agonizing from. I'm agonizing towards what he wants for me and his power is carrying me. It may be hard to believe now, but when I was a student and I had lots of free time, outside of terrorizing people with buzzers and things, of course, I used to do a lot of weightlifting. And now all I have left to show for it is some knowledge. So let me impart that knowledge now. It's one of the key principles in weight training that you exhaust your muscles so that they break down and they rebuild bigger and stronger. So take bench press, for example. When you're at the end of your set, you've got so little strength left, but you need to get rid of it. Uh, but you can no longer push that weight on your own. So you have a spotter. And my mate would stand above me whilst I was on the bench. And when my strength was failing me, he would give me the support I needed to lift the weight so it didn't crush me. I pushed with 100% of the strength I had left, making a facial expression that could curdle milk, pushing on through the agonizing struggle. And when I couldn't do it, when it was too much for me, he lifted the weight for me. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to fill us with his strength each day in each moment that we might face the world filled with the strength and courage of the risen Jesus, the King on the throne. In overcoming those inbuilt cultural narratives in pursuit of the unwesternized Jesus, Jesus as countercultural as he truly is, in that pursuit we fight with all the energy that we have, through his strength, filled with his spirit, emboldened by what he says about us. We press on with everything we've got in his strength and he carries us. And the final thing I want to say as we come to a finish tonight, as I come to a close, and the crux of everything that I've said tonight about overcoming those societal lies that hold sway over us, about following the real Jesus is this. Remember who he is and who he says you are. And who is he? He is the God of all creation. He made it all. He is all powerful. He is absolute perfection, absolute justice, absolute love. And who does he say you are? What does his word say about you? It says this, that you are his child, that he knows everything about you because you were made in his image, that you are chosen, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he says this, that when you acted out of the warped lies of this broken world that separate you from him, which we all do, he didn't write you off or turn his back on you. What he did instead was show what you're worth to him. And what you're worth to him was his son, a part of his very self, suffering an agonizing death on a cross, suffering a temporary separation from his father so that you can be in relationship with him, so that you can come before him pure, with a clean slate, 
absolutely free. Jesus' death is the ultimate expression of God's love for you. And he says you are absolutely worth it. And Jesus' resurrection shows that he has overcome. He has overcome guilt, shame, hate, and death. And in, we, in him, we can overcome all things. Any cultural lie, any label of the past, any falsehood about ourselves or who we are. It's all about him. It's all through him and it's all for him. Why don't I pray? King Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your character is so beautiful, so good, so amazing, that we could be astounded for it for eternity and it would never run out. It would always astonish us. Lord, we thank you that your heart is for relationship with each one of us. And I pray that over the coming days and weeks and months and years, we would receive fresh revelation after fresh revelation of who you are. We would see you with clarity. We would be able to cut through all the noise of the world around us to see you as you truly are, as beautiful and good as you truly are, as countercultural as you truly are. And I pray that in intimacy with you, we would fall more deeply in love with you. We would become more truly who you've made us to be. And we would be transformed by your presence day in, day out, in your strength.